0: And that was devastating. It really was, and I'm going to get upset. It's all right. It was devastating just because he had a massive impact on my life. At that point, I almost left the industry. I almost left. Just because...
1: How you grow and effect changes will benefit your learning curve. While remembering
2: a father's values of learn, earn, and serve. You're now raising a child on your own, and they go, "Let's give her the CEO role." <laughs> <laughs> a bit more on a plate.
0: The closest relationships that you have to have if you're a CEO is with your chief people officer, and it's with your chief financial officer, and it's with your. I hate I hate it when people talk about oh they weren't the right cultural fit. I hate it because you should always be a cultural ad and clients buy people. You can have the best AI. It's a tool in a toolkit. It's the people behind it that's really gonna make that difference.
2: What values do you hope to pass on to Isaac, your son? Greetings, I'm Ashley Samuels-McKenzie. And I'm Charles Parkinson. And welcome to How I Became. Where we unveil The unscripted journeys of inspirational figures. If you enjoy the show, could you
1: do one thing? Subscribe. Wherever you are, just click the subscribe or follow button. That simple act can help us grow the podcast in a big way. And we need your support to do it. And if you really want to help play a part in our growth, rate us on Spotify or leave a review on Apple Podcasts. It would mean the world. Thank you. This episode is brought to you by Uber, shaping the future for consumers as they go anywhere and get anything. Advertising on Uber connects brands with hundreds of millions of people using Uber around the world in the moments that move the most. To learn more about what we can do for your brand, visit uber.com forward slash advertising.
0: Hi, I'm Karen Blackett, and this is how I became WPP UK President.
1: Welcome all to part two, where this miraculous story continues, where we'll pick up from 1998 to hear more of what our guest has been through. From leaving the world of track and field, to pursuing a career in media, and setting a path for many to follow, lighting the way for those that may be succeeding her. Making a brave decision to parent alone as she was first appointed as CEO. A true testament in being convicted in knowing the way that you want to go. So now we'll pick up where we left off. Who knows, there may one day be a part three. Introducing Karen Blackett, OBE and UK President of WPP.
0: That's brilliant, Ash.
1: Welcome. <laughs>
2: Welcome there we to go. Welcome well, that's it. That's poem number three for you. Because had a few. if anybody doesn't know, we have done part one already. So if you haven't watched that, you should probably go and watch the one we did at the Festival of Marketing on stage, mm-hmm. yep. which covered the first part of your life. And now we continue the story. I am
0: like really old. <laughs> the, first, the first part of my life. Um,
2: and this is the story of how you became. The UK president of WPP. And mm-hmm. um, for anybody who doesn't know, this is a FTSE 100 company. We're not talking about a small little, little back street corner shop here. <laughs> We're talking about uh, a FTSE 100 company um, that has 115,000 staff globally,
0: 13,000 in the UK.
2: 13,000 in the UK.
0: Yeah.
2: And globally, revenues of 14.4 billion in 2022. We're talking big numbers, mm. big companies. So, um, And also, 307 of the Fortune Global 500 are WPP clients. 64
0: wow. of the FTSE 100 as well.
2: That's impressive. Over yeah. two-thirds. Yeah, No, almost two-thirds. Yeah. Sorry. Amazing. So it's going to be fascinating to delve in. We're going to delve into exactly what you did to get to this position you're in. How you lead, how you manage people, how you... Um, work with your finance team, how you operate, and, and um, a big business. So I think mm. for people who are wanting to learn how to rise to the top, they're wanting to learn how great businesses are run, they're gonna learn a lot from this story. But also parents mm. and mothers and single mothers, mm-hmm. which, of which you are. So you've done all this journey as a single mother, which we'll get into Indeed. that story. Yeah. So we're gonna share some great advice for anybody who is in that situation as well. Um. So let's let's do it. Let's die. Oh, some news though that we have had fresh off the press. Today. Fresh off the press. Let's say that the contract was signed today. I don't know if we'll leave that in. Um, <laughs> we have a new headline sponsor, uh-huh. there, and they do have a gift for you as well.
0: Oh, mm-hmm. who's your headline sponsor?
2: Uber Advertising. Well
0: done. That's amazing.
2: So um, that's
0: fantastic.
2: For the next six months, they will be the, the headline sponsor for the show.
0: Fantastic.
2: Thank you very much. And uh, the gift to you is um, you're going to get a voucher Fantastic. to use to, to take a, an Uber journey. which all about journeys on this story. An yeah. Uber journey to a destination you like. You probably should say that differently. You can't go to Paris or something. <laughs> like. I
0: was going to say, did I go to Barbados? <laughs> you
2: can get to the train station and back. <laughs> no. Uh, or you can use it. To have a meal with your son, Isaac, on Eber Eats and Fantastic. have a goat your favorite, you that
0: know. kid, honestly, he's eating me out of house and home. So that <laughs> may well come in handy. So thank
2: you. There we
1: go. And
0: congratulations to you both. That's brilliant. News. Thank
1: you very much. That's great. Yeah, it's been a it's been a great start to
2: the year.
0: Yeah new studios headline sponsors get to. Just, just don't stop don't <laughs> stop um and honored with your presence today yes it is my absolute pleasure it really is
2: let's get into the story um just before we
1: start we've got a few quick fire questions yeah of things we'd love to love to uh, hear back from you mm-hmm. what is your best business leadership or management book that you would suggest people read?
0: Oh, I love Ken Blanchard, the one-minute manager. I think there's lots of tips in that, which when I became CEO, I read, and I was privileged enough to see him speak at um, LSE events, so some of the events that they do. I think he was one of the speakers a few years ago. So, yeah, one-minute manager is brilliant. Excellent.
1: I'll definitely be checking that one out. Hopefully it's on Blinkist. We can listen to it on the train home. Mm-hmm. <laughs> there we sure go. Sure it is. <laughs> and then what kind of music artist are you into at the moment?
0: Do you know, what I was saying, I was having this conversation with you as I walked in. I, went, I was privileged enough to be invited by Paramount to the UK premiere of uh, One Love. So I have uh, started listening to Exodus again, which is Fantastic. such a classic album. Yes, love it. So uh, I am... I'm chilling, I'm embracing love and passion on that Exodus album. It's a brilliant film about community and hope and passion and family. It's a And all of that is in that album as well. So I'm listening to that again.
1: Brilliant. Yeah, I love that album. You've got the, the, the studio recording and there's the live version as absolutely. well. And they're
0: both just fantastic. Yeah, absolutely.
1: Next one. I think I might know the answer to this. But yeah. what film would you suggest people check out?
0: <laughs> One love. <laughs> it is, we are so polarised at the moment as not just a country, but also, I think globally, that that film is needed and it's needed at this time. Um, I think it's no coincidence it's being released on Valentine's Day. Yeah. Um, so I absolutely would go and see it. Even if you don't like the music, it's just a lovely story of faith and hope it really is and love so yeah definitely go and see it yes, and kingsley's things. pretty awesome yeah. as well and it as is lashana that who Rita Marley is amazing and uh she played her so well a really strong queen so uh, yeah brilliant film one love film mm. out 14 for feb out 14 for feb i do not work for paramount <laughs> <laughs> sponsored
2: but no <laughs> but th- that when this out when this comes out the film will be out so people can
0: Fantastic. go and yeah. their good. tickets good. now. Then. good yeah
1: and then final question are there any podcasts that you're really into
0: how i became <laughs> i'm not just saying that honestly really? i oh. think it's you've had some really interesting guests so i think uh, your podcast and then Sharmadine Reed does a podcast as well mm. which is brilliant because I just love to your point about people's journeys because um, people's journeys and stories are re- really fascinating really interesting so um, they stand out to me because it's not the usual sort of podcasters that you're getting at the moment so and I'm not just saying that to flatter you but I do listen to this and Sharmadine's ones as well. Oh, I think we great. appreciate that. Yeah, we appreciate um, that. We didn't Thank you. ask you to say that, <laughs> I should say. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh,
1: okay, let's do it. So to pick up where we left off, you leave your job to go to what was described as a back street corner shop agency. Yes. The media business.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And this is around, and around, you're there for a few years, and around 2003, it merges. Yes. Merges with Mediacom. Yes. And in the space of seven years here, you go from joining this small little agency to becoming a member of the board of directors. What were the key things that you learned and you applied in this role to help your career grow, but also to help the, the business grow as well?
0: Well, I think I said in in the, when we met in part one that... The thing that really attracted me to the media business was I found a bunch of mi- misfits. I really mm. did. And in a good way, There was they were passionate, they were hungry to succeed and I felt like I belonged. I really did. So they were misfits and then there were pioneers in there as well. So what I really focused on was looking at where I could complement. The team and it really felt like a team so everybody has strengths everybody has improvement areas and that team of people at the time worked as a team to sort of elevate each other and sort of plug where there were gaps so for me it was about wanting to succeed the company to succeed mm-hmm. you know there was that little ringing in my ear about backstreet corner shop and it's going to be the end of your career and nobody's going to know and you're going to be ruin your your career and your chances in the industry these were all the things that were said to you when you told when your leaving. previous employer yeah. that you're off yeah okay yeah that you know why would you leave a top three media agency for an agency that wasn't even I don't even think it was top 15 I really yeah. don't um and I remember when we merged, there was a headline in the, camp- in the campaign, which I think said Grey by name, Grey by nature, because Grey owned Mediacom Oh, right. um, and it was a good merger on paper, but it wasn't that interesting and not, right. uh, not that fascinating. It was a bit boring. And uh, there's nothing like a bit of negative publicity to spur you on. Mm. And it spurred everyone on. It really did. So I had that backstreet corner shop, grey by name, grey by nature. And uh, it was like, right, we're going to defy those odds. We're going to defy what's said and we're going to prove a point. And it was just people that were hungry to succeed, but not in a ruthless way. And I had so many belly laughs at that company i really did really did in those early days because it was full of real characters real characters and the fact that there was diversity in that agency all the way back then yeah so all the way back then there really was and it was embraced so i think what helped me was a feeling that i belonged because I think that's really important that you've got not just a place in a room, but a seat at the table and you're listened to. Because sometimes you get a seat at the table, mm. but they don't really want to listen to you. Whereas yeah. there, you absolutely, you had a voice and they'd to your voice. So I think that helped. And also just putting my hand up and volunteering for stuff as well. So mm, We've heard this before. wanting yeah. to get involved and do things um was really important because that gave people a chance to see what you could do. Yeah, Nobody's not going to be able to know what you're able to do if you don't throw yourself into it. If yes. you don't. And sometimes it works out, sometimes it doesn't, but you've got to you've got to step forward. I love yeah. that. And that is yeah. a common
2: thread in this podcast. Many people who've got to CEO have said the same thing mm. that early on in their career, earlier on in their career. They've been the one to put their hand up, say yeah. yes to things and just be willing to. And that really does stand out to to people who are maybe going to give you that next step up in the, yeah. in the business.
0: And look, what's the worst that can happen? You make a mistake and if you're in your, if you're in the right organisation, you learn from those mistakes. Yeah. So rather than there being big repercussions for making mm-hmm. a mistake. And look, there are some companies where you make a mistake and it's not allowed. Mm, yeah. And there are repercussions. But I was in an organisation where you could learn, you could grow. And if you make a mistake, you grow and you learn from it. So mm. the organisation had a growth mindset. And I think that really made it easier to step forward and volunteer.
2: Mm. Excellent. Okay. And then we, we, we move forward. Um, mm. You get to the role of uh, director of operations
0: um, oh that's a we've leapt right forward we're, okay we're, yeah. we're
2: leaping a little bit because there's so much to, to cover um and then uh yeah we get to a moment that there's a
1: big impact on you you're at an event a concert for a teenage cancer trust yes and do you you get a call yes you got a call uh what was that what was that call telling you
0: so i was at an event and it was at the Royal Albert Hall. And uh, at that event, uh, I didn't get a call. I was going to call my dad. There was something telling me, call my dad. And I was thinking, oh, and I checked the time and it was like, oh, it's really late. I'm not going to call. It's really late. I'll call him tomorrow. And then I was at work. And then I got a call the next day at work saying my dad had been rushed into hospital. And this is my dad who had never been ill a day in his life. Never been. I've literally never known him to have a sick day. Not that I could remember. He obviously had had sick days, but not ones that I could remember. And even then it was for something major. It was like an appendix or something that he had a sick day. So for my dad to be in hospital and for my mum to be calling me, and my mum sounded really strange. She sounded, she sounded like a little girl. So she sounded a mm. bit lost and like a little girl. And she wasn't usually like that? No, not at all. Um, so it was, your dad's gone into hospital, and I'm like, well, what for? So it was a said, complete uh, surprise, you didn't could, know? Total surprise, he'd not yeah. been ill. I'd been round there the weekend before, and he had a bit of a cough. And I remember mm. he had a cough. And it sounded a bit of a chesty cough. Yeah. But typical, my dad, you know, he'll brush it For off. Sure, yeah. And so this was on a Wednesday. I remember on the Wednesday, so he'd been rushed into hospital. I remember leaving work and uh, I drove down to Reading because my mum and dad were in Reading. And my sister was travelling. So she was on a sort of break travelling. And we were trying to get hold of my sister. And I remember just asking the doctors, what's going on? What's happening? Because it's not like my dad to be ill. Mm -hmm. And they'd put him into an induced coma as well. So it's like, oh, my God, it's serious. It is serious. And they basically said, your dad's got um, pneumococcal pneumonia. And uh, he's got sepsis. And we're trying to control the infection. And we're trying to control the sepsis. And it's just like something happening to somebody else. It's like, my mm. dad can't have sepsis. What are you mm, talking yeah. about? And my mum, who was a nurse, was just so... And she knows because she's a nurse. Mm-hmm. But she was so adamant, well, he'll get better. Of course he'll get better. He'll be fine. Of course mm. he'll be fine. Because it's my dad. He's never been ill. Yeah. And then I remember sitting with him. And then it was the race to try and get hold of my sister and to try and get her oh. back from wherever she was. So she was, and it was like, and she'd gone into the flipping Amazon. (laughs) So it was like, oh my God. So she was trekking through the Amazon. And again, it was just, I don't know. I I think God is good that, as I was trying to get hold of her, she was at a point where they were having some form of break, where there was Wi-Fi, Mm -hmm. where they were, before they went on to the next bit of the trek, uh-huh. and the doctor's saying, you've got, you've got to get your sister back, you've got to get your sister back. So it then became this race to get my sister back. And so my dad went in on the Wednesday. My sister managed to get back, and we had uh, family friends. My godfather's son, who's like my brother, um picked my sister up from the airport, and she managed to get to the hospital the Friday early evening, and he died the Friday night. So it's literally so she got to see him, th- and I think he was hanging on, mm. and that was devastating. It really was, and I'm going to get upset. We got these issues. It's all right. You okay? It was devastating just because he had a massive impact on my life, um, and that was so unexpected. It really was so unexpected. And then I saw my mum fall apart because she hadn't expected it either. So at that point, I almost left the industry. I almost left just because my mum had fallen apart. My sister had to go back traveling because she couldn't cope with it. Um, So I sort of had... I moved back to Reading because uh, my dad was a typical West Indian man, always helping other people mm-hmm. and doing his own stuff last. And um, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, um, so uh, he had been an electrical engineer for um, BT and then he'd taken redundancy and early retirement and he'd sort of retrained as a plumber and electrician. And he started doing his own house. Mm. And as usual, oh, I'll finish that at some point. Busy <laughs> doing everybody else's. Right. So his house was a mess, <laughs> it was an absolute <laughs> mess. There was sort of bare brick and wires hanging out, there was all sorts. So and Everyone else
2: looked immaculate. Everyone else He's is great. Right. Yeah. My
0: mum had to sort of put up with this unfinished house. <laughs> so I sort of moved back to Reading. And again, that's when you know you're at the right company because they gave me that time out. Because mm. I almost left, I yeah. almost left. So I was thinking, I don't know how we're going to manage this. Um, And they sort of gave me the time out to go and sort out my mum. And I'd still check in. um, And I then came back. And they sort of made the journey to me coming back easier. Mm -hmm. Much, much easier. And that makes you incredibly loyal as well. Incredibly loyal. Because they recognised I needed time out. Mm -hmm. And then that I'd be focused when I came back because I mm. needed to refocus. Mm. Yeah, And I was, I was then refocused when I came back.
1: And having gone through this, what would you say to other professionals that have a busy life mm. about seizing the moments they can to spend time with family or to pick up
0: that friend? It is so important. It really is. It's um, Your health is your wealth. Mm. It really is. So you've got to look out after it. And you don't get those moments back. So I talk a lot about um, work-life blend. I met a fantastic woman called Anna Rasmussen during my career when I became a CEO who uh, is sort of a maternity coach for working women. Okay. And she has a brilliant company called Open Blend. And it was her that taught me about... um, work-life blend rather than work-life balance because work is life and life is work and you've got to know how to blend the two.
1: Yeah.
0: Um, And it was her conversations and coaching with some of the mums in Mediacom who were struggling, really, really struggling, that we sort of looked at a programme and worked with Anna about making sure that people manage their work-life blend. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think it's really important that you don't get those times again you've got to, you've, there's going to be times where you're more focused absolutely on work and there's times where you're just going to have to pull back because something else is going on. Mm. And if you're at an organisation which understands that, they get the best out of you. So I absolutely would, don't just go head for the top and not look around you. Mm-hmm. Um, you've really got to look around you and blend your work life. So you,
2: you get through this emotional process um significant event in your life yeah. and um and that loyalty is is kind of sparked with the organization that looked after you through that time and you get up Absolutely. to um chief operating officer for AMIA for Mediacom. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Um and it's around this time that um well, let's just say relationships are never straightforward.
0: <laughs>
2: <laughs> you meet the man of your dreams.
0: Yes, I mm-hmm. thought he was. <laughs> Can you tell us what happened the first time you met or um where did it all begin? It's interesting because I did meet him shortly after my dad died. Oh right. Um, so yeah. shortly after my dad died, uh coming back to London, and I think I saw what I wanted to see. Wow. Um and I think look, hindsight's a wonderful thing, and I was clearly still grieving. Because I'd sort of looked after everyone else and not looked after myself, yeah. so I was clearly still grieving. Met someone yeah. that I thought had the same characteristics as my dad, um, and very quickly became engaged. Very quickly became pregnant, and it was later in life. So I was in my, th- I was thirty-seven, and I then very quickly realised that this was not my life partner he was not the man of my dreams it's difficult it's still difficult now it really is um but my focus is always on what's best for Isaac um as well as my own mental health as well so it was really hard really really hard to make that decision um especially when you've got a newborn baby i mean again my, mu- I think it came at the right time as well because, as I said, my dad had sort of died suddenly. My mum had just retired from work. She'd been a nurse for 40 years. Wow. And so she stepped in. She literally mm-hmm. stepped in and she'd, she'd drive up to London from Reading. She'd stay at mine sort of Monday night to Thursday night and she helped look after my son. So... She was amazing. She was absolutely amazing. Um, and I could not have done it without her. And it does say it takes a village to raise a child. And my God, it does. I mean, it really does. So Isaac has so many aunties and uncles who clearly aren't blood relatives, but they are. They're mm. the family you choose. So they are. Um, and, you know, he's blessed to have those people in his life. And they've all stepped in and helped. They really have.
2: And did you know
0: after you'd made that decision that this is the right one? or Did you ever have doubts? No, I absolutely knew it was the right decision. There was no... The thing that I was sorry about was that Isaac was not going to grow up in a household that I'd grown up in with a mum and dad in one household working as a team. That's what I was sorry about. That was the only regret. But no regrets that it was absolutely the right decision for me to do it. None whatsoever. Do you have any advice for anyone who's listening to this who
2: might feel like they're in a relationship that maybe isn't the best or or um yeah to to handle that situation
0: I think you have to talk to people because you can't you can be in denial and you can be trying to make the best of a situation but you have to put your self and your child first to really think about what's the best environment they're going to be in what's the best possible environment and two people arguing all the time is not an environment Mm. i have so many people and know so many people that stay because they think it's best that they're together but if it's volatile if you're arguing that is not good that has a massive impact on that child and how they formulate relationships when they're older Mm. so but you have to talk to somebody about it it's literally it's 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 not a brave decision it's the right decision but it's a hard decision that you just might need somebody holding your hand helping Mm. you when you make that decision who did you have to talk to oh I had loads of people I actually had loads of people um work people friends family or or, all absolutely mm. both and look you have to Again, this is something you have to set your stall out at work. It's not something that I was ever going to try and cover or hide because it's all about that work-life blend. Mm. It's It would clearly, if I'm trying to cover something that's going on, would affect my performance at work. Yeah. You know, I know people say bring your whole self to work. You don't always want to bring everything to work, but people need to know what's going on. Mm. Um, so, again... You know, I was just as ambitious, just as focused, probably more focused because I had other things to do once I left the office, so probably more focused, more determined to be successful and to succeed and get ahead because I had somebody that was relying on me that couldn't do it for themselves Mm. Um, and somebody that, you know, I was the sole provider, so... I still am the sole provider for him. So it's down to me. So it made it me more focused. So I really think you've got to have the conversation with friends and then you've got to have a conversation with your company and hopefully you're at the right company. But it's not saying that you want any special treatment. It's just making sure people know what's going on. Yeah. So that if you have to leave one day at four o'clock or you have to leave one day at three o'clock, or you're not able to make a 7.30am meeting, there's an understanding as to why. Mm. You're just as focused, just as ambitious, even more productive. You just work in a slightly different way. Yeah. So Mediacom at the time
2: is is, is revenues of over 100 million uh, annually, a huge company. Mm. And they see these two big life events you've been through and that you're now raising a child on your own. And yep. they go... Let's give her the CEO role. <laughs> let's, 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 let's give her a bit more on her plate <laughs> and offer uh, the the role to run this company. How how does this happen? Do you get a call one day and they say?
0: Do you know what? I?" And I have to give, I have to doff my cap to Stephen Allen and Nick Lawson, who uh, were the chair and the CEO. So Steve was the global CEO and executive chair. Nick Lawson was the EMEA CEO of Mediacom, both of whom I'd known since I joined Mediacom. When I joined Mediacom, Stephen was the, or Media Business, Steve was the MD, and Nick, um, I think, was the new business director. Mm -hmm. And both of them knew what I was capable of, and that's Mm -hmm. the thing, that they'd both seen me work and knew what I was capable of they knew what I was really good at they knew where my areas of improvement were mm-hmm. and the UK was the biggest market for me to come at the time um and it was at the time it needed um, a bit of a reset in terms of getting our mojo back um I'd been in the EMEA role chief operations officer for EMEA for three years and in that time we'd gone from number six in terms of a network to number three um, trying to get different markets that had never worked together to work together because there hadn't been anyone in that role before we'd not sort of had regional roles trying to sort of share best practice turn up as a team to pitch and so they'd seen what you know, I had done with the help of others in EMEA and it was a bit of a reset was needed for the UK. Um, because we, we'd gone for a period where we weren't winning, um, and we weren't winning pitches in the UK and we weren't keeping clients. So, you know, Nick and Steve sort of saw what I was capable of. So, my family situation, we can work it out, we can make that work, but we need you in that role. Because if you, if you want a team to get its mojo back, if you want it to become more dynamic, if you want that team to become more diverse in terms of diversity of thought, bring me in. Because that's my shizzle. That's what I love to do. It's, it's literally an organisation or a brand that needs reinvention or an organisation and a brand that needs to really grow and get supercharged, bring me in. I'm sure some of that's down to my athletics career as well, is yeah. that that real focus mm. of there's a task ahead, I know what it is, getting everybody, you know, aligned behind that focus, um, I can do. And it was a massive honour when they said, look, we, we need you to do this role, it was a massive honour. Were you surprised when they said that? And how? Yes, because I months? was really, into, I was really loving my EMEA role. I'd literally right. got to a place of, we have got a team. We're working together as a team. We're collaborating. We're winning business. Mm. We're sharing. We we've got best practice. We, you know, are learning about each other. We're winning clients. I was enjoying my time. Doing my EMEA role, I really was, and I was making it work with the travel with my son as well. So, and when they had this conversation, how many, how old was Isaac? He was ten months. Ten months. Ten or (laughs) eleven? Yeah, ten or eleven months. Yeah, ten months. Yeah. So this was October, October, twenty ten, and then I became CEO the end of that year, beginning of the next year.
2: So when you're in that room and they present this opportunity for the first time what's going on in your head (laughs) uh
0: but i said two words (laughs) the first one was holy and the second word (laughs) ended with a k (laughs) and started with an f um and it was you weren't expecting it i was not expecting it as i said i was having a great time Mm. building the emir network i really was i had uh, I was working, I had a co-pilot, so it was me as the COO. I had Matty Me as the CSO. It was brilliant working with Matty because I learned so much. She's such a great thinker. And I was working with amazing CEOs around the network. We had to make decisions to change some of the CEOs, but I was loving sort of influencing. It's That role was the role that taught me the most about leadership because okay. you weren't... I wasn't any of the CEO's bosses. I couldn't tell them what to do because I'm their boss. That's the role that really taught me about influence, about mm. leadership being from the front, the middle and behind. Yeah. Um, because you can fly into a market and you could be there for a week or two weeks and they could stick two fingers up when you get on the plane to go and not yeah. do anything that you yeah. say. So that was a real role about understanding how you bring gifts to make... Mm. People join in, and I don't mean physical gifts, but how you mean how you give gifts in terms of I'm going to help you, and this is going to help your business and your PL because it's your PL that you run, and I'm going to gift give you a gift to help it grow. So whether that was a gift of new business and we can work and win a client, whether it was a gift about a piece of research, whether it was a gift about I don't know a training module or program bring a gift that's going to help them so you would fly to whichever So I had re- priority markets so yeah. I had priority markets which were all the markets where there was issues with black people but I had <laughs> priority <laughs> markets so I had Joburg I had uh Russia I had Poland I had the Czech Republic I had France I had Spain so Barcelona and Madrid um I had Turkey, so I had priority markets where we were behind where we should have been in mm. terms of performance. So I was giving those as priority markets to try and be a catalyst for growth. Mm. So, and you would lit-
2: you would prepare when you go there what gift you were going to bring. Is that how you do it? I
0: would literally work with the CEO, understand what was going on, mm-hmm. and then know okay, well, there's an er- issue in this area. So what is it that I can do to help? Um, And I always say that, and I've said that to people that work with me, your role is to make someone else look good. It's not about yourself looking good. Your role is to make somebody else look good. They look good if you can help them grow. And it's as simple as that. So Mm -hmm. work out, and it's different for each market, what it is that's missing or what it is that needs dialing up that can help them grow, that can really help them win. And what have you found is the best way to get that information from the CEO? You've got to, you've got to spend time with them. You've got to hang out. They've got to know you. They've you've got to build trust. I always talk about how trust is so important because that's how you get great working relationships. And there's a brilliant book, another good book actually, which is the Trusted Advisor, which talks about trust equals credibility plus reliability plus empathy divided by self-orientation so you've got to be credible Mm -hmm. I can't just turn up and I've not got a clue about the industry and what I'm doing so you've got to be credible you've got to be reliable so you've got to absolutely do what you say you're going to do Um, but the key and I do think the key which is really important is empathy understand what that CEO is going through understand what it is that they're facing so they may think oh my god is another brick flying over trying to tell me what to do whereas i've got this client who's having a go i've got these people leaving really understand what it is to be in their shoes how would you do that talking you've literally got to absolutely talk about what's keeping them awake at night what's given them joy. It's really about understanding the people that you work with, really understanding them. And then that self-orientation, it's less about you and it's all about them. How long would you spend? So you'd go to Turkey or you go to Spain. How long would you spend there? It happens over a period. It's not, it never happens over Mm. one meeting or one conversation. Never. Right. Because people don't open up. Yeah. And look, it's not every leader is comfortable with this but you've got to show your own vulnerability you've got to show where you may have messed up or you've got to show where you don't know the answer you've mm. got to show your own vulnerability so that you're in it together yeah you may be the person that's in charge and look when I was in that COO role I wasn't the person that's in charge but I was there to help the CEOs of the markets grow
1: mm. and for that did you have like a a spreadsheet or something where you log where where your developments are going with each country?
0: Yeah, I mean, you always have a traffic light system on stuff and I am mm. a spreadsheet queen. Yeah. So <laughs> you always have it, as Serena will tell you, <laughs> I always have some way of assessing where you are and where you get to. So whether that's a traffic light system, whether it's a scoring system, whether they self-assess as well, so that you have some way of them self-assessing rather than me making a judgment because I'm not there all the time, yeah um, but the key is you've got to co-create it can't be you know the a mere team or whatever role you're in have enforced this on someone else. You've got to co-create it um, and look it takes time and it takes a number of meetings and it takes. Hanging out in the market, not just doing, you know, video calls or telephone calls. You've got to hang out and see it for yourself rather than making an assessment when you're not living it. And if you would, if
2: people on the show, do, people who listen do love the sort of granular details. We're going quite granular here. But when you would, if someone's in an EMEA role or they're about to one day, how would you organise? You're going to go and spend some time in in turkey let's say how would you organize that time with the ceo would you do you have any tips or tricks do you get them to take them to your house do you spend some time their home do you do it all in the office if you
0: can get when you get to a point of having a personal relationship that you're invited to a home you're on a winner you really are and look that happened a few times in in my Amir role where you're invited to somebody's home um you know uh israel was uh one of the markets which I loved going to. There was the chief strategy officer at the time, Gilad, who would invite me to his home, invite people round. Um, he was amazing, so he became somebody that could pick up the phone, call me for stuff, or drop me an email, and vice versa. And what do you think you'd done with him to get him in that position where? He felt I helped like he him wanted. with awards. So I helped him with awards. I helped him with one particular client that was focused on awards. And I'd come in and I'd do a workshop, I'd do a presentation, would go through what they were looking at, entering into awards, whether it was good enough, what we could do to improve. So it became part of that process. And in fairness to Gilad, it was him that started that process and invited me into it. Mm. Um, So again, it's about how the market, how the agency, how the clients how you can help them. Mm. Um, So I I, I wouldn't be able to say there's a set rule of you should do X, Y, and Z. It is different by market. It really is. Sometimes you go in, you see the CEO. I always want to try and meet the teams as the management team as well. Um, You get so much from the informal conversations, not just the formal. Yeah. Um, do you do that one to one? Do you get them all together to meet you? Depends. Yes. Sometimes you. Sometimes there's safety and people feeling as they're in a group, and mm. things won't be attributed to them. Right. So they'll they'll talk a bit more. Sometimes people are more comfortable one on one without other people overhearing it. It there's no set rule. I mean, look, I I I sit on the Diageo board and I look after workforce engagement for the Diageo board. I love it because I get to go and meet. With different teams across the world, and ask them, "How do you think we're doing? What do you think could be better?" It's the same sort of principle. Do you have a set? Do you have some sort of great questions that you always ask in? What these would situations? you do if you were CEO for the day? So, yeah. what would you do? And again, this is something that came from Medicom, where they used to run a training program, which was if I'm if you're the CEO for the day, mm. where we'd put people into small teams they'd have two minutes to present. So it's not a big, lot, laborious amount of work. Two minutes to present to the exec team about what they'd do if they were CEO. And sometimes, look, you have to put in a little bit of framing so it's not random. Yeah. Um, but it's interesting what you get back when you ask people, you know, thinking about performance, <coughs> excuse me, thinking about performance, thinking about culture, thinking about attracting talent what would you do if you were ceo for the day so some sort of framing you know what would you do about products what would you do about brands and then see what comes back and what about with the
2: ceos are there any golden questions that you ask ask the ceos that always work to
0: to get? what's keeping you awake at night it really is what's keeping you awake what are they really worried about because that gives you the nugget of where you can bring a gift
2: Mm, yeah loads of value in there thank you for that that was excellent so as as a single mother and a ceo
1: you you have like dual responsibilities here one side you've got your son he's a little baby he needs a lot of attention on the other side you've got your organization what would be your tips on handling such a scenario for someone else
0: there is no doubt that having a foundation of great childcare helps Mm -mm. um and as I said, in the early days, it was my mum that sort of stepped in um and sort of did that role helping. Um and look, I would always I would I was fortunate that I worked at an organisation where look, there is no doubt that being able to attend training programs is connected with your ability to progress. Mm. So being able to take part in training programmes, get the right training, helps with your progression. It does. It's difficult to do if you're a parent. It's even more difficult to do if you're a single parent because you've got to think about childcare. If it's a three-day program and it's away, you've got to think about childcare. Um, If there's dinners and events that you've got to attend, you've got to think about childcare. And look, I was fortunate that I had my mum who was able to help, but then it gets to the point where She's getting older. She it's was travelling from she was traveling Re- Reading from Reading. every time. Yeah. yeah, yeah, she'd come and stay. Mm. Um, it'd get to the point, you know, her eyesight was... Because she's got sarcoidosis, so her eyesight isn't great at any point. She could have a moment where she should go temporarily blind. Mm. Wow. And it's...
2: That's hard to look after a child. That's yeah.
0: hard to look after a child, let alone drive on the M4 between oh, wow. Reading yeah. and London. So you then need to think about how you're going to manage this and I was look I was in a position that I could then afford to pay for a nanny not everyone can do that um and I I also wanted to socialize Isaac because conscious that he was an only child uh so wanted to put him into nursery as well so he started to get his social skills up to speed so I chose a nursery near work not near home when he was little just in case anything happened I could make a dash literally 10 minute walk up the road from where I was working um and that meant that I had to negotiate with work about being able to travel in and drive in with my son um and I then I I always had male nannies because I wanted Isaac to have that male figure in the household And also for him to not see stereotypical roles as well. Mm. Um, So I had some amazing male nannies who I am fortunate are still in our life today. So Mm. they become family. Mm -hmm. Um, So Isaac still sees his uncle Julian. He still sees his uncle Reese. He still sees Mr. Anthony. Um, And look, that's really important Mm. that I'm able to have that. I was able to afford that. Not everybody is able to afford that, and that's where it needs a village to really help you, Um, and to be able to look. I had friends that would say, "Even you know, as Isaac went into secondary school, well, on a Tuesday, don't worry, he can come home with my son. He'll come to our house. He'll do his homework here. You can collect him seven thirty, eight o'clock. But don't worry. So just having those." People that understood that your schedule isn't nine to five, every day is not the same, mm-hmm. and having those people step in and go, Right, I'm going to make it easier on this one day. Having those people, it, you add up those one days, it makes it easier mm-hmm. and it's enriching for Isaac. So it's not me outsourcing parenting, <laughs> it's actually him enjoying different environments and learning from different environments. And then telling me all about it when uh, we get together, and, we, and he gets home and I get home.
2: Your CEO for the first time, going through all this. How did you approach that? You know, you said you were tasked with getting it, getting MediaCom's Mojo back. Yeah. What did what did you do? A hundred day plan. Would you? Wh- how did you approach?
0: Yeah, it? I mean, I think everyone does a hundred day plan, and then you do a thirty day plan. So you have to break down your hundred day plan into small attainable goals. So I think you have to do it into small goals. Um, I think you have to work with your management team. So we did lots of workshops. We did lots of... So people that work with me know that I have an agenda item, which is body, which is better out than in. Mm-hmm. So that you want to create a circle of trust that people are colleagues. You're going to be spending more time at work than you are at home. And you've got to get on with the people that you work with. You've got to trust the people you work with. So doing lots to create a team. And I don't know if it's because I did team sports. I don't know. But I am really focused on team dynamics in order to get high-performing teams that then know their role within the team. So doing a lot with your management team. A, to make sure that you've got the right people in the right roles and you're all going in the same direction. There's... Uh, One of the team, when I became CEO, Kirsty Wen, and she's an executive coach now, we used to have an analogy which I used to use on the um, managing partners team, which is all about you're on a bus. And it was easy for people to talk about their seat on the bus or whether, I'm not sure if I'm on the bus, I think I'm at the bus stop. (laughs) <laughs> I think I'm running alongside the bus, but I'm not getting on the bus yet. So that people could say if they were in, if mm-hmm. they were believing it, not quite believing it, or I think I need to move from the bottom deck to the top deck in this seat. So that made it mm-hmm. easier to have the conversation about, I'm not sure where we're going. I'm not sure if this is right. So that bus analogy I've used a lot about, yeah. are you on the bus? Are you off the bus? Are you at the bus stop? Are you running next to the bus? Just so you can understand where people were, mm-hmm without it becoming confrontational or difficult for people to talk about. I'm not I'm not following this. I'm not into this. In terms of like the vision of the company, yeah. where the
2: company's going. Yeah, and the
0: strategy and where we are mm-hmm. and what we're doing to implement that strategy. It's all very well and good having a strategy, but you've got to execute it. Mm-hmm. Um, who I don't know who it was. Somebody said something about strategy without execution is hallucination. So <laughs> it's, and it's true. You've got to be able to... Mm-hmm. You can have a brilliant sounding strategy, but what does that actually mean to everybody's day jobs? What are yeah. they actually doing? And working what, working that through, really important. Well, in
2: 2015, under your leadership at Mediacom, uh, Mediacom generated 790 million of new business, including in that was Tesco. Mm. What did you do?
0: stalked dave lewis <laughs> <laughs> who's dave lewis tell us he who, was who, the anyone, group he? ceo of tesco okay. he'd sort of been appointed from um unilever so he came in and he looked at he did that are we working with all the right people so so you knew that was rebu- happening well he reviewed all of his supplier relationships and um and you were they were a client or not a client they were point? not a client i'd been stalking them for years mm. in what way and they weren't a client just you know do you want to have a chat do you want to come in look this latest research can i come in and talk to you about the latest and mm. this nah, is all over nah, email nah. email right. okay you don't get phone calls record, returned if you're sort of cold calling mm. um so trying to send gifts yeah things that could be of interest things that could help Interesting. uh and it was when dave came in um you know and, and tesco had been on a journey it used to be the nation's Favorite supermarket. Mm-hmm. One in it, four pounds sort of, was spent at Tesco. It's sort like. uh, it sort of faded; its star had faded, and uh, it needed its mojo back. So mm. those—that's my sort of organization that I can get my teeth stuck into when you need to get that mojo back and reconnect.
2: So how? D- uh, so you were stalking, and stalking, sending them all these
0: gifts, and then then they they review. They were deci- I wouldn't say it's down to my stalking, but they decided to review. Mm-hmm their um media agency relationships they'd been with uh one agency for some time who had delivered who were doing great work um but there was a there was a need for a reset in all areas so Mm -hmm. a reset in terms of tesco and the team at tesco a reset for the people working with tesco
2: and And just to say for context for anybody who's not in advertising to get a supermarket as a client are they one of the most prized clients to get do they bring in the most revenues
0: um look it's 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 one where if you get a supermarket client because of the very nature of supermarkets it sort of touches most people in the uk whether you Mm. shop at that particular supermarket or not so your work gets seen i see Mm. um and it's one whereby I think the agency has always become better because it's so fast paced. Yeah. It's so fast paced working on a supermarket. Retail's quite fast paced but supermarket grocery retail is really fast paced just if you think about people's habits, consumer habits and how they've changed just in the space of the pandemic. Yeah. It's fast paced. Um, and it's highly competitive. So you know that if you get a supermarket client it's going to raise your game. It really is mm. going to raise your game and you have to raise your game.
2: And so just, yeah, finishing off the story, how did you get them to
0: um, go with you? Do you know what, It ended up being a pitch on a Saturday at Tesco. I remember, and look, I can count on both hands the number of times you'd have a group CEO in a media pitch. It's normally the chief customer of, cl- customer officer or the chief marketing officer the number of times you get a group ceo in the media pitch is rare mm. but and the thing that i admire about dave that he wanted to look in the whites of the eyes of the people that he was going mm-hmm. to be working with to make sure that mm. they felt it was their money they took as yeah. much care and attention cuz it's their money and were they had skin in the game that they really wanted to help turn it around And without being specific, how much are they spending for? for Well, you can look at that on NMR, but you know it's over 120 million. So I'm not giving away anything that you can't research yourself. But over 120 million a year.
2: So that's why he wants to be looking. Yeah, because it's a lot of money.
0: It's a lot of money, money and it advertising works. It has an effect on people coming into your stores. And so, yeah, it was a pitch on a Saturday. I remember walking in, it was Dave um, and Michelle McKetrick was another one, uh, become a good friend, a client that's become a good friend. Um, So there was three clients and there was three of us, which again is unusual for a pitch of that size for just three people to present um, was unusual. And for three people to make the decision on the other side was unusual. Um, I have to say it's uh, one of the pitches I really remember just because it was myself, Phil Hall, who's now CEO of Ocean Outdoor um, and Chris Binns, who's a global strategist at uh, OpenX at WPP on Coca-Cola. It's the three of us that went in and pitched. So Phil was investment. I was leading the agency Chris was strategy. Um and look it was it was an hour we were given there was follow up that I had to do uh which was just me that they'd, they'd answer follow up. So that's really testing you as a leader. Yeah. Um what and was we the follow
2: up they came and met you I off. had
0: to meet them in a Tesco store. Um so, there was a follow-up in terms of further questions, which I had to answer. You didn't know what was going to come, so mm. further questions. Um, walking
2: down the aisles next to the strawberries <laughs> that we <be> asking these <laughs> questions? The, or the Tesco in? Cafe. Okay. Oh, okay. Um,
0: and uh, I then remember that they told us that we'd won. Um, and all the team knew I was going to Tesco to meet the client. And they're all waiting back at the agency. Because no, this can this is big this can change. It totally can. And especially mm. where it's one that there was a gap in our experience and portfolio of having grocery retailers. Uh-huh. So there was a gap and it had been one that we'd been literally courting for years. <laughs> for wow. years. And I remember walking back in and my boss Nick Lawson was waiting, everyone was waiting. Chris and Phil were there waiting. <laughs> I was like, we've got it. And honestly, <laughs> you, you remember moments like that. You really, yeah. really do. And look, I have to say the Tesco team, you know, and Dave um, leading it at the time, he said, you know, this is our Tesco. I may be the person at the top, but it's going to be all of us that turn it around. So he was very collective rather than individualistic. And again, that's the sort of environment that I can operate in where, yeah, you may be the leader, you may have the title of CEO, but it's a team of people that are going to do this. Mm. And, you know, he did this and sort of had all of the new team, not just the media agencies, but creative agencies, everybody that was involved and said, we're going to do it together. Um, and fair play to him, he absolutely did. Yeah, and
1: looking back at your teen- tenure in Mediacom, Can you think back to some of the most important strategic decisions you made and how they affected things?
0: I think the lifeblood of an agency is how you win clients and how you keep clients. Mm. So having the right people in that sort of marketing and new business role, because that's your shop window in terms of how you're going to show up. Yeah. So that's really important, having the right people in that, new business and marketing team and having the right people pitch Mm. um, who can represent the opportunity represent the agency demonstrate how they're going to deliver growth or demonstrate how they're going to deliver the change of whatever the client is that they're after and being able to ask the right questions as well because it's not always what's written in the brief which is what's needed so being able to probe and ask the right questions is really important. And I've done that role, so I know how important it is to ask questions that aren't on the brief. So that's really important, making sure you have the right team for new revenue, but you have to make sure you've got the right team to keep and grow existing clients as well. Yeah. Um, so again, reviewing and looking at who our client directors were, and making sure they're seen as business directors. I want you to know all about the business of your client, not just about the media side and the advertising side, but the business of your client. I expect you to know about share price. I expect you to know about issues where it comes to supply chain or whatever it may be. Understand the business of your clients and making sure I had people in that role. And then also making sure that you really have that diversity of thought. It's so flipping important that you have people that really understand who it is that you're trying to engage with in terms of presenting a brand a product whatever it may be that needs diversity of thought that means that you need people that are going to bring all sorts of uniqueness to help problem solve if you've got and I always talk about a fruit salad Um, and the people that work with me are so bored of hearing about fruit salad but we have a beautiful fruit salad of people in this country and that needs to be reflected in your team if you've got all apples and pears it's never going to be as tasty it's Mm. never going to be as interesting it's never going to be as fulfilling as when you've got a bit of dragon fruit or Mm. a bit of mango in there as well Mm -hmm. so you really need that diversity that vibrancy because I think that sparks creativity Mm -hmm. so again trying to bring different people into the agency uh, was really important to me that started with you know social mobility uh, and ethnicity it you know carried on with looking at making sure women stayed in the business Mm -hmm. that they could manage their work-life blend and didn't drop out when they had children because it's flipping hard so that keeping talent in the business helps keep our clients in the business mm. and with us because you get that creativity. Yeah,
1: that's okay. some great, great points there shared.
0: Honestly the people that work with me are so bored of hearing about <laughs> fruit salad. Well <laughs>
2: <No>, I <laughs> really think don't. it's a brilliant analogy. <laughs> and we love fruit so We're feeling <laughs> hungry now, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh now on to a, a a challenge
1: that many people face. We step into a, a time machine for a few years and we arrive at two thousand and sixteen where you're now the chairperson of Mediacom UK.
0: I thought you were gonna mention Brexit. <laughs>
1: well <laughs> there's a bit of that going on as well. But we're gonna talk about something that a lot of people face and can relate to and which you've got some great advice. The dreaded imposter syndrome. Mm. And for our listeners and viewers out there, just a breakdown of what the imposter syndrome is, a psychological occurrence in which people doubt their skills, talents or accomplishments and have a persistent internalized fear of being exposed as frauds and we've heard a few times over these series of people facing this in different ways have you ever faced this and if so what what how did you get over it and how would you help other people get over this
0: i absolutely have throughout my career you if especially when you're the only one you question whether or not you belong you really do. So if you're the only woman in the room, the only person of colour in a room, you question if you should be in that room. So I absolutely have. Um, and in 2016, um, significant year, you know, we voted to leave the EU, but I also took a sabbatical <laughs> in 2016. So I... Um, I took a three month sabbatical um, and I embarked on a Thelma and Louise trip around the US with my son. <laughs> so we sort of drove from San Francisco down to Santa Monica and then we sort of island hopped around Hawaii. And He was, was he been six at the time? He point? was six yeah. at the time. And um, we had different people join us along the way, including my mum. Uh, who joined us and sort of flew to Hawaii and sort of island hopped around Hawaii with us. And uh, I sort of had my PA uh, was a wonderful guy, um, Darren Andrews. And we sort of had a agreement that, look, for me to not be constantly on my phone looking at emails, I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm literally not going to check the emails mm. But if something really important comes in, really important, whereby we're about to lose a client and no one else in the agency can deal with it. And we've got an amazing, talented team, so I'm pretty sure someone else can deal with it. But if for whatever reason you need to call me, send me a text or literally disaster's about to happen. Send me a text. I will check my text. I'll see that I'm not checking emails. And I remember I got this text from Darren saying... You need to check your email. There's an email. <sighs> what what were you thinking? here? Of, yeah. <laughs> yeah. in America. There's an email. You better check it. And I was thinking, oh, my God, what the hell has happened? And I remember seeing this email, um, and it was an invite to a dinner, a small dinner at Number 10 with the then Prime Minister, and it was due for when I was due back and i was like oh my god and it was i think i can't even remember i think it was to discuss the uk and what was needed following brexit for businesses Mm -hmm. and they had invited it was sort of a a a small selection of business leaders to go into number 10 to meet then prime minister theresa may and it was you plus partner so there was loads of immediate things that went through my head Mm -hmm. oh my god I've got to go and talk about Brexit. I've just been enjoying myself learning how to surf in Santa Monica. (laughs) Suddenly, (laughs) I'm going to have to go to number 10 and talk about Brexit. And then second, who's my plus one? (laughs) I'm not married. I don't have a partner. Who's my plus one going to be? I don't want to be the only person to turn up without a plus one. Oh, my God. So there was all of this that sort of went through my head why me? Who else is going to be invited? Who else is going to be there? And I remember getting the invite list. And it was, you know, the CEO of, uh, it was the then chair, sorry, of John Lewis. It was the CEO of Marks and Spencers. It was the CEO of KPMG. It was a CEO. It was literally, I think it was like 10 CEOs and I was one of them. And I was thinking, well, how am I here? Mm. and not Martin, was why, because okay. Martin was running WPP at the time.
2: And Martin is for anybody. Martin know...
0: Sorrell, um, he was the founder of WPP, um, former executive chair and founder of WPP, mm-hmm. um, and person that gave me my current role. He, he made me country manager of WPP in the UK shortly before he left WPP. Mm-hmm. So I was thinking, well, why am I going and, and not Martin? um and then it was oh my god what am i going to say what am i going to do and it was and i have i have had a life coach for 30 years Mm. um a brilliant guy called adrian green that runs a company called pressure point and uh he is the person that helps with my imposter syndrome as do other friends and cheerleaders but he was like well why wouldn't you be in the room So it always turns it, well, why wouldn't you be? Mm -hmm. You know, they've looked at a different cross-section of people from different industries. You know, you're looking at the advertising industry. You're also professional services industry. Mm -hmm. Why wouldn't you be in the room? Mm -hmm. And if you think about the CEOs, it's mostly going to be men. So why wouldn't there be diversity of thought in the room? They're all going to be white. So why wouldn't they have you in the room? It's not that you don't belong. You're adding something when you're in the room. And that's the thing that I really have to focus on to get over that imposter syndrome. There's a reason why I've been invited into a room. Mm -hmm. It's not to be like everyone else. It's to add. So I always talk about cultural add rather than cultural fit. I hate hate it when people talk about, oh, they weren't the right cultural fit. I hate it because you should always be a cultural add, Mm -hmm. not a cultural fit. And it's remembering that is the reason to overcome that imposter syndrome, you're additive, you're adding something to a room. It's not about knowing everything about Brexit in this example. It's about knowing what the impact could be on your industry. So the impact in terms of future talent, the impact in terms of licensing, the impact in terms of, you know, all of these areas. That's what I'm being asked to talk about. Um... And it was really interesting it, it was I remember Jane Ann Gaudier was there as well. Dame Jane Ann Gaudia was there. I think she was at Virgin at the time at Virgin Money. And she had come on her own as well and not oh. brought her husband. So you decided not to bring anyone in the end. Well, I didn't want to turn up on a first date to, uh, <laughs> to, to been number 10. Us, That's like gonna that could have been the first and only date. So <laughs> no Here one we go, did. number 10.
2: What, what do you mean? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> Prime <laughs> Minister. Yeah. <laughs> it's how I roll. Restaurant. Just get used to it. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yeah, I decided to go on my own. And Jane-Anne was on her own as well. And I was thinking, thank goodness. Mm. Um And then the other CEOs of men that had bought their wives. And I was sat next to Theresa May's husband. And he was saying, you know, uh, it was very intentional that she'd made it partners because she knew it would mostly be a room of men. And actually with their partners there, their wives there, the men would stop peacocking. It Mm, would be about them actually contributing, listening, talking and not one-upmanship. Mm. that tends to go on so very smart of her as well very yeah. smart yeah well
2: you've you've mentioned it there uh, in 2018 is this when um martin gives you a call and goes yes karen there wasn't a call there was a big interview process oh, so. yes. <laughs> but yeah <laughs> yes um uh so yeah how how does that happen for to begin with and um and yeah why why you do you think
0: um so it and it's interesting because there had been country managers appointed in other markets um so I wasn't the first country manager but they were in much smaller markets um so this is the first sort of top 5 market maybe top 3 market where there was a country manager role and if you think about WPP WPP at that time was a collection of amazing agency brands and uh but there was no connection between the brands Mm. so if you put a client first and you think about a client's journey rather than an investor focus if you think about a client journey through WPP it's hard because there was loads of brands there was not simplification there was complexity and so those country manager roles are meant to be how you make that client journey easier through, w- through WPP, but also how those different agencies work together to win new business as well. Mm-hmm. Um, and we should
2: just say, for anybody who doesn't know, WPP is the, the, the holding company, the parent company of MediaCom. Yeah. And you were at MediaCom at the time. As, I was uh, indeed. As yeah. a check person. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, and so I remember talking to martin and having an interview with martin and when i'd got the role talking about what the kpis were well
2: do you remember the moment you got the role you got the call that uh, or however it was done that you um would be would you get get
0: there was a big negotiation with martin over salary oh (laughs) so there was that first (laughs) um
2: and how did you manage that how did you get that
0: was tough if anybody knows Martin, that was incredibly tough. <laughs> um, Any tips
2: for anyone going through something similar?
0: Know your de- know your wa- know your value.
2: Mm. Okay,
0: know your value. Make sure you know your numbers as well, because Martin's an ex CFO. Yeah. Um, so Martin is brilliant with numbers. Um, so know your value, know your numbers. And how did you, how did you present your value? Like how do you? That's about what you've done. That's what you've delivered, whether that's about client growth, whether that's about client relationships, whether it's about, you know, the stat that you talked about earlier in terms of the amount of new business over the time that, you know, you're running new business or CEO.
2: It was over 900 million, if anyone forgot that. it's <laughs> a lot of money we're talking about. A a lot um, no, it was 790. So, sorry.
0: 790. Yeah. But um there's a nine in there somewhere. So so know your value. Um and then be know where you're prepared to compromise. I see. Um So you reached an agreement. We reached an agreement. Um and then, you know, it's about and the the great thing about that role was that there hadn't been anybody in it before, so the role did not exist. Okay. So there were KPIs which were given and you could shape them. You mm-hmm. could really help shape them in terms of your market and what was right for your market. And look, the UK, in terms of the life stage of WPP, you had mature brands in the UK. Um, so you had, you know, the JWTs of the world. You had mm-hmm. the Wondermans of the world. They hadn't been merged yet. And they'd mm-hmm. been around for how long? They'd been around for decades. decades. Mm-hmm. Um and you have to
2: come on and say, what? what's your responsibility?
0: It, my responsibility is for us to work together to try and grow the business. Mm-hmm. So the KPIs are about uh, clients, a big client focus in terms of winning new clients, growing existing clients. So that's about when you pass the baton mm-hmm. from one agency to another within mm-hmm. WPP. There is absolutely a focus on Martin saying, I want the best talent at WPP. And I said, and that means diverse talent, Martin. Mm -hmm. And he went, yes. So making sure that we look at where we're getting talent from and not fishing in the same pools Mm -hmm. for talent, but looking at new pools for creating talent. And it's the how we're seen and where we're seen as well. So reputation was really important. Um, You know, Martin was the one that I talked about. Well, business doesn't just happen in London. Yeah. we've got talented people in Manchester mm-hmm. and you know I was responsible for our campuses so creating campuses mm-hmm. we should do a campus in Manchester um, and you know that was we were talking about that back in 2019 and I opened it last year wow so Takes last time. July well yeah we had to build a building so yeah I actually La- built it yeah uh, so last July yeah it was last July
2: <laughs> and so these, these KPIs that you've got, how did you, how did you you make your mark on, um, and, and achieving them?
0: So look, we, I was able to, two people that helped me enormously, um, but I could not have done it without them. Um, Lisa Humphries, who's now, uh, chief operation officer for Group M across EMEA. Um, so she was at Mediacom at the time. Um, I don't know what role Lisa was in. I think she was in our investment team at the time. And then George and Lindsay, who was in U- in the US, in New York, working at uh, one of WPP's smaller creative agencies, Who wa- who's a Brit, who wanted to come back to the UK. Without those two, um, I couldn't have done it. So that was the sort of small original team. We sort of added to the team as we went along. Um and we wrote a strategy. So we started having roundtables. Round there were so many CEOs and leaders when I started. There was like 110 wow. leaders. So they're either CEOs or MDs. In what region? The UK. In the UK. Yes, yeah, we so had really small agencies wow. of 10 people to agencies of, you know, 2000 people there was a range of size
2: so those 110 so, were under your remit as it were and i couldn't manager.
0: do one-on-ones with 110 <laughs> take you all year. so we started doing round tables for people mm. to be able to talk about what keeps them awake at night oh, where's yeah. the opportunities but we're doing in a round table and you know i'm not gonna lie at the beginning there was this there was this not opening up not sharing mm. fear don't want to go here because because there was competitive it I was, was everybody say, was competitive they
2: literally would be competing on pitches yeah. together right yeah so it's like they're part of WPP but when it's pitch time it's they it feel does. like they're competitors yeah.
0: and it wasn't collaborative we didn't work as a team and so part of that was creating that feeling of trust it was creating how we could win collectively mm. Um so how did you yeah. create did that you trust? Do that? Yeah. Again, it's the same thing as in the Amir role, spending time with people, bringing gifts to people, how you can help. I and I remember um it was April two thousand and eighteen that I was due I'd done my ninety day plan. Mm-hmm. I'd written the strategy with Lisa and Georgia by listening to all the CEOs, looking at where We needed to do more, looking at where there was strengths and weaknesses in our offering, doing a survey externally amongst intermediaries about what they thought about WPP and how we showed up when we showed up as an integrated team, surveying our CEOs about what they thought about what Martin at the time termed horizontality, which is about us working working together as a team and that integrated pitching, and what the CEOs felt and presenting it back. Um, And I remember it was April, 2018. Martin would put time in the diary. We'd got all 110 CEOs or leaders. And uh, we had Martin was gonna open it up and talk about why it was important and talk about why um, I'd been put in the role. And I remember we'd written the strategy Right, I'm going to, and the way that I tend to work is I'll have a real period of peak, and then I need to make sure I have time to refill my hopper. So I had this peak writing this strategy. Right, I'm going to take a breather for a week before I then Mm. go and present. We had the date in the diary, and I'd gone, Barbados is good for my soul. So I'd Mm -hmm. gone home to Barbados. And uh, I remember my phone ringing in the early hours, thinking, Oh my God, what's happened? Mm. (laughs) Because no people know I was away Mm. and my phone was going at like three in the morning. It's better be ten Downing street. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm thinking, what is this? And I remember trying to get to my phone and it was a journalist. So AI didn't know a journalist had got my mobile number, but it was a (laughs) journalist. Uh I can't even remember what newspaper it was. It was a journalist. Might have be been The Guardian, it might be in Media Guardian, I can't remember. Do I have a comment about Martin's departure?
2: Ooh. What? Departure <laughs> from where? Where's he flying to? <laughs>
0: <laughs> and I was like, I'm really sorry, I'm away, I'm not in the UK, I'm on holiday, um, I'll have to give you a call back. I then look at my emails and I see hundreds of emails. And I see an email from Martin, which was his email he sent to the company saying goodbye, that he'd left. And this is the founder and chairperson. Of, of w, so I was in total shock. Uh, A, because it was in the middle of the night and I wasn't <laughs> expecting it. And B, oh, my God, I've got I've got this strategy presentation literally in about five days time. Yeah. Oh, my God, what is going on? <clears throat> So then uh, Mark Reed, who's the uh, current global CEO of WPP, became interim CEO along with Andrew Scott, who's the global COO. They became interim CEOs. I'm then emailing them f- to find out what are we meant to do? Should I cancel this strategy mm-hmm. launch? I, I don't think we should because all of this its in their diaries. It's held. Mm. They'll want to know what's going on. Can you both come along and do the first half an hour Q&A? Because, you know, the strategy is the strategy. It's based on where we are. But they're all going to want to know what's going on with Martin, what's Mm. happening. They'll all want to know because all their clients. So we then had uh, a slight pivot uh, (laughs) in terms of the change of the format of the meeting. That it was then Mark and Andrew coming along and just doing... Q&A with all 110 and then I stepped up to then present the strategy wow. for WBP in the UK afterwards. And look, the good thing was that I had everybody there. The good thing was that there was a real focus in terms of how we now show up. Mm. Um, and look, I'd taken lots of advice and spent a lot of time talking to country managers in the other markets to see how they did it yeah, um, and what they did and how they operate. And taking the best from each of those different Mm. country managers. And there were some amazing ones. So Ranjana in Indonesia was amazing. Demet, who was uh, in Turkey at the time at WPP, was amazing. So I had some great advice in terms of how to write a strategy and how you can show up and how you can make a difference.
2: So I don't know where I'm going now. Where (laughs) are we going? I'm lost. I think
1: we're now now moving into 2020, the year of clear vision. And the year where you also step
0: up and become the UK CEO of Group M. At the same time as being WPP country manager. At the same time as being WPP manager. So it was country a dual manager. role. And I'm not going to lie, it was a role that almost killed me because I did that for two and a half years and that was a lot during the pandemic mm-hmm. and the murder of George Floyd. That was two and a half years, which we all changed Yeah. as a society. We all absolutely changed. That was tough. And it's the same approach that I always took going into the Group M role when you're suddenly in a role and you're managing everybody virtually <laughs> from their homes. And it's more difficult to get to know people in the way that I'd normally get to know and spend time with them. It's more difficult to do when you're having to do it remotely. But and this is going to sound odd. It was also easier to do because you're invited into people's homes. Mm. which oh, interesting. i'd never you know it takes time to get yeah. invited into people's home yeah. i'm now invited into people's home so i can see the dog in the background i can yeah. see the cat i can see the kid that's crying in the background i can see the beach towel on a chair because you've gone surfing I, you, mm. you get invited into people's home mm. so you do get to know people and they got to know me as well they got to know My two dogs, Bob Marley and Missy Elliott, they got to know the dogs. They got to know Isaac because he would be online doing his Zoom lessons. Uh, So they got to know me very quickly. So it sounds really odd and it sounds counterintuitive that actually being stuck in our homes and having to lead remotely enabled me to get to know the executive team at Group M in the UK quicker it sounds odd but it it, I did
1: and what what was your growth in remit for you taking on this new role
0: look again and and it's knowing what my personal brand is and what I can do when I'm put in a role it was about Group M UK getting our mojo back Mm -hmm. so it was about reinvigorating a team it was about um really focusing on where we can work closer with the media agencies. Mm-hmm. So for those that don't know, Group M is almost like the holding company for the media agencies within, with, within um, WPP.
2: And actually, for anyone watching, if you want to learn more about Group M, we've done an episode with, with Josh, Josh Krzyzewski, who is currently the EMEA CEO of Group M, which is the role we're talking about now.
0: Well, he was oh. he was he's a Mia CEO and UK CEO. He's got two roles. Okay. Because we don't have one role at WPP. No. It's only <laughs> no. do two. Do two. <laughs> yeah. And if
2: you're having one and raise a child at the same time, Absolutely. you can do that as well. Just <laughs> as long as you're doing two major things. In your Absolutely. Life. <laughs> yeah.
0: Um and Josh I know very well. So Josh was my COO okay. when I was CEO at Mediacom. Mm-hmm. Um Yeah, we did talk about you yeah. a
2: little bit in this episode. Yeah.
0: yeah. So um yeah, so the group enroll that was at a really tough time for all businesses and for all people. Um and it was okay, let's look at our executive team, let's look at how we work. Are we working together as a team or are we working in separate silos and we were working in separate silos and not working as a team? How did you identify that? Um There was no cross-sharing of information. Mm. There was no passing a relay baton. I know I keep using athletics analogies, but there was no passing of a relay baton. There was no... There was really little collaboration because somebody was doing something brilliant over here, and they had no clue about it, even though you sit in the same building, in the same... And they weren't meeting as an executive team. So Mm. I don't know what... Why would got into that situation? But they weren't functioning as an executive team. Who who wasn't? Sorry, uh, our our executive team. So our our um, leaders of the different departments weren't meeting as an executive committee
2: in group M. In group M, right? In yeah. C.
0: Um, and they were all leading brilliant departments, but not meeting and cross-sharing, collaborating, showing up together and where were we going so i'm not sure what the strategy was to sort of get us through a period where there was a lot of change because we'd had a new global ceo mm. which was looking at um a lot of change through his strategy of synergy where so there was a lot of global change that was happening and then we had this pandemic that just popped up in the middle of it <laughs> yeah. and then we had the murder of george floyd which changed so many organisations um saw a lot of diversity tourism but uh changed a lot of organizations and it became a a priority as well so a lot happened between twenty 2020 twenty and
2: twenty three mm-hmm what how did you to so you, so you you realize that they weren't um collaborating and working together how did you then get them working together and and improve again
0: that? it's um it's through look we spent time together online as a team, um, again having that agenda item of body is really important to allow people to get things out into the open, which have been bugging them. Um, and do you it's like, say
2: to them? Do you go, "So, what's your better out than in?" And they know. what I you think mean.
0: You, you start. You lead by example. Oh, so start by saying, "This is something that's been on my mind," or "This is something that's been annoying me," or "This was said and it's really had an effect." Like what? What's
2: an example of what comes up? I don't know.
0: It could be something about, I don't know, um, it could be something like somebody said that, uh, you know, we need to present our P&L and our operating margin using these ratios and they don't agree with the ratios that I've said, Mm. but they haven't told me, they've told somebody else. Oh. So... Tell me, we can have a conversation about, about it. It. Mm. it could be something like that.
2: Mm. Um, and if left un- unspoken about, it can fester. It can
0: fester and, it, and right. it spoils the dynamics of a team. Mm-hmm. It's, um, it can be the rot of a team that sets in mm. when everybody's talking about everybody else and not to each other. Yeah, not addressing it at the exactly. table for it to then... To and look, I do think conflict management is a really undervalued skill in any business not just in you know the marketing communications industry it's a really undervalued skill and you need to be able to have those conversations and have those direct conversations rather than the elephant in the room and nobody speaks about it it's a bit of a british thing as well i think Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) um
2: so what was your strategy while while in this role for um market expansion entering new markets
0: we look, I think Group M UK at the time needed to be much more agile, so we sort of brought in how we worked in squad teams. So you ran a squad, but then you were part of a bigger squad. Um, just to explain what that means. So it, it's so I didn't want people working in departments and only in their departments, you'd have a smaller squad that you were part of that wasn't your only squad that you could be in. You might be in another one as well. Oh. So it's a much more agile way of working, mm. which allows cross-fertilisation. Mm. I see. Um, so a squad, what would their focus or outcomes or, or objectives be? So it could, so you could have a squad leader that was focused on... Um, I'm trying to think. It could be focused on how we centralised digital services... So that would be their real focus, but that squad leader was also essential to new business and marketing.
2: I see. So they're in those different squads as well, maybe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I see. Yeah. And this is for this is for looking at the companies with the subsidiaries
0: within Group M. This is the no. This is the core central team at Group M, and then how they interact with the yeah. agencies. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so you have that sort of core central team at Group M. And then you'd have a wider executive team, which included the media agencies. Mm -hmm. So again, I don't know why, but the agencies and the Group M central teams hadn't been meeting. Um, And they needed to meet because we were all working together and Group M's in service of the agencies. So there'd be separate one-on-one meetings that were happening between the CEO of Group M and the CEO of the agencies. But actually we should be talking as an executive, bigger committee, um and working together, especially during a pandemic, mm-hmm. Um especially during a pandemic. Mm-hmm. So uh, look, a more agile way of working was really important. A real focus on what our purpose is at Group M and what we do and what we stand for, because again, a perception that it's just about scale and that if the only thing that you can talk about Group M is how big we are, that that's an issue. <laughs> <laughs> so a real focus on, you know, purpose at Group M and what we do and how we operate and making sure that we're working with the agency leaders to help craft that and co-create that was incredibly important. Mm. Um, and look, just a a real focus on helping the agencies with growth. So when they have a existing pitch, uh, how can we help, how can we lean in, how can we bring gifts, extra resources, or if it's you know a tricky client conversation because something's not happened, which is within the Group M central team remit, showing up to help and explain And to talk about commitments to changing it.
2: Mm, Love that. Great advice in there. Um, So we get past the pandemic. October 2022, you get a new role. Talk us through the events of how this Mm. unfolded.
0: So being parachuted into Group M and then out of Group M (laughs) (laughs) and back into WPP, to the country manager role with just more KPIs, so it was president. There's more KPIs involved um, and a slightly bigger remit. So it's the country manager WPP role. It's uh, it's uh, challenging because it's post pandemic, mm. um, and look, if I'm totally honest in terms of my split time at Group M and WPP. It was at least seventy percent Group M and thirty percent WPP, and I needed to come back to work with all the other agencies at WPP, not they just the major you. agencies. Yeah, they, they did you. miss me,
2: and <laughs> <laughs> I miss them. So what? What exactly? Now this is we're now at uh, your current role. You're yep. currently UK president of WPP. Yeah. What are I, your opened I opened a campus
0: in Manchester. I opened a campus in Rose There's one to come, which is. Uh, the what was the old FT building opposite Rose Court. That's to come later this year. Um, it's back to making sure that we show up and talk to intermediaries about WPP and what we're doing. It's about making sure that we lean in and help with the different agency pitches that are happening. And what's great to see is that you've got the agency... CEOs that sit on the WPP executive committee they are absolutely trusting each other and handing the baton Mm -hmm. and knowing and bringing others in to say I've got this client actually they're looking for x so I've talked about you I've opened a door so they're doing it naturally themselves which is fantastic and I have to say that WPP executive team that exco team for the UK they're amazing they're all brilliant people who i love hanging out with so you
2: um wb has a number of kpis across operational people sustainability and financial and you have said to us before that you have to have a passion for the people as much as the product and the numbers are the end result of the outcome mm-hmm. so why do you say this um and is it Is it possible for a CEO to do well and only focus on people?
0: Look, I don't think you only focus on people. It's never never either or. You've got to have a focus on talent um, and putting the right people in the right roles. You've got to have a focus on marketing technology and how it's changing the roles that all of us do. So it's never either or. It should never be one lane. It's about how you do both. Mm. Um, And look, we are a people business, You can have a brilliant bit of tech. You can have the best AI. It's a tool in a toolkit. It's the people behind it that's really going to make that difference. That's the differentiating factor. I genuinely believe that because you need those talented, creative people to be able to use that tool. Um, And clients buy people. They do buy people. Of course... They want to make sure that they're working with the right tech. They want to make sure they're working with the right system. They want to make sure that they've got the right operational structure, but they buy people.
2: Mm. And then on the finance side, what what are your KPIs on the finance side? Growth.
0: <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> Very simple growth, uh-huh. whether it's revenue, whether it's margin, mm. it's all about growth. I mean, it really is.
2: <laughs> <laughs> and how how do you work with your CFO? How does that work for
0: you? Uh, so Joanne's brilliant, actually. Um, so Joanne, um, she's not that long into the business. I'm thinking. I'm trying to think how long she's been at WPP. So she arrived from Britvic. She's probably about 15 months in. Okay, okay. Um, and she's CFO for WPP globally. Globally, yeah. Okay, yeah um and look the conversations that and wpp is a matrix so the mm-hmm. conversations that i have are with the ceos yeah. of all of the wpp agencies in the uk i then run a one of the communities I oh, always talk about communities so one of the communities that i lead is our wpp uk cfo forum so we have one this week actually so we have one this week and that's an opportunity for the CFOs to talk to each other mm-hmm. because when you're in an agency as the CFO you think it's all down to you but that's an opportunity for the CFOs to be able to talk to each other to see what somebody might have implemented in their agency that mm-hmm. could then be lifted and shifted into another agency mm-hmm. to look at where there's commonality in terms of problems that they may be facing mm-hmm. But also for them to be able to have an audience with, you know, our WPP global CFO, because that normally is their global CFO, will have the audience with the global WPP CFO. So for the UK guys to actually be able to get FaceTime with Joanne or with Nick, um, who works into Joanne, is really important. And, you know, there's things that, any organisation that will go through, whether that's transformation in terms of systems that can cause bumps in the road, whether it's really understanding why a certain target has been set and having the opportunity to say, well, I understand, but this is what the implications are and at least feel as though they've been heard. The target may still will be the target, <laughs> but at least feeling as though they've been heard mm-hmm. to raise whatever the issue may be. Mm-hmm. Um So... Look, I I think the closest relationships that you have to have if you're a CEO is with your chief people officer and Mm. it's with your chief financial officer and it's with your strategy person Mm. Um, because that's all about somebody helping you set the strategy to how you can grow, Uh, somebody who's helping you with making sure you've got the right people in the right seats on the bus Mm. to help implement that and then your cfo that's then helping enable you and counting the returns
2: and uh this, just staying on the finance thing at the moment for a minute you said to us that it's important to know what are the ratios that your cfo scrutinizes can you explain that
0: and look it's different in every organization so um You know, some organisations are very focused on staff cost ratio, so your cost of your staff compared to the money that you're bringing in in terms of the revenue that you're bringing in. Some organisations will be really focused on EBITDA. Some organisations will be really focused on, I don't know, um, top-line growth, so just looking at revenue. Uh, So it's understanding what's the right lever that you need to be focused on and how everything else can affect that lever. Mm. Um, And it's different in different organisations. It really is. So, you know, you've got some organisations that are very focused on market share. So, you know, if I think a grocery retailer is very focused on market share, what is the contributing factor that's going to help you with market share? So it's, it's really understanding... What are the financial metrics that you need to really understand in a PL? and mm. l
2: And on the strategy side, you know, you said it's important to work closely with your strategy person. Do you organise a meeting and go, so, what are you thinking strategy-wise? What should we do? <laughs> How do you actually work together? You
0: need somebody that's going to be able to look at market conditions and market dynamics and bring that into what you're doing. Okay. So whether I, whether that is if you're a client operating in i don't know the beauty market being able to understand what the market dynamics are of your of what all your competitors are doing what it is that consumers are doing and where you sit in terms of your ability to appeal mm. to consumers you need somebody that brings the outside and brings it in, that can help you go wide and then go narrow. Mm -hmm. And I think that's so, so important. And look, I've worked with people like Crispins, who's now at OpenX, who I think is a fantastic strategist, who always was that person that helped me when I was in the Mediacom role at CEO. He'd go wide and then he'd simplify. Mm -hmm. And we didn't always agree, we'd absolutely shoot the breeze and have a debate. Um, But you need that person to sort of sense check and to crystallize and help. It's what I was saying before, that strategy without implementation is hallucination. You need somebody that's going to help make something big, real for somebody's everyday job and have those milestones and attainable goals to where you want to get to. Mm. so there's a big vision is great but big vision needs to also mean how you implement bit by bit in order to get to that end goal
1: Mm. yeah yeah uh, it would make sense given the amount of complexity in having so many people in so many different places and i i i love that aspect of like what you get to do i think it's exciting to be able to Handle so many different complexities with the right experts to give, as you say, this is everything, these are the important parts, this is what I see needs to happen, and this is how it could be implemented.
0: And also to have somebody to say, this is what can happen if we don't do it. Mm, But also this is what can happen if we do it and it doesn't go right. Mm. So it's literally, you need somebody that's sort of asking all of those questions with you. Mm -hmm. So this is the, cost benefit if we do it this could be the cost downside if we don't do it these are the potential pitfalls in terms of what could go wrong mm. and just being so just so that you're you might get the sense that I'm trying to be prepared so that you're prepared Yeah. Um and I think when you've done that it allows you to be brave mm. I think it allows you to be brave if you've got a sense of what could go wrong what's the net gain if it goes right this is what we do if it does go wrong you're brave yeah and i'm not good with people that won't have some bravery bravery i'm really not and you need sometimes you need to be brave if you want me to if you want to maintain the status quo that's not me that's not an organization (laughs) that i can be part of you you've always got to be going for the next thing
2: and finally you've you've mentioned mark reed who's the Global CEO of WPP. Mm-hmm. And, and what's your relationship like with, with Mark Reed? How do you work with your global CEO in a really help, great way that others can learn from?
0: Mark sits in the UK. So unlike some of the other country presidents and country managers, Mark knows a lot about what's going on in the market that <laughs> I'm the president of. And look, I think Mark focuses on the global clients um, and leads me to sort of look at the UK clients. And Mark is accessible uh, for some of those really important set pieces that we do. So, when we're presenting to intermediaries who are responsible for connecting us to potential new clients, um, we'll do a fireside chat together with the intermediaries, and Mark will make himself absolutely accessible. Uh, where we have certain clients that want top-to-top relationships, Mark absolutely will lean in. So I think with Mark, it's about knowing when to lean in and then when to leave me alone. <laughs>
2: <laughs> a, crucial, a crucial part of the, the piece. Mm. Um, okay, so I think we you're happy with everything? We'll yeah, we're reaching. And I think there's
1: one more thing I'd like to um, okay. touch on and hear a bit more from you about, and that's in May 2022, you're one of the founding trustees of the Black Equity Organisation.
0: Please tell us a bit about why and what it, what it aims to do. So, look, we had the murder of George Floyd. I remember during that period, as well as in the Group M role, the WPP role, I was being asked a lot by different uh, journalists, whether it was newspapers or TV, to talk about why that, was important in the UK why mm. how it had impacted the UK and why it resonated with someone that's black in the UK mm. so um i remember doing lots of different tv interviews and taking part in different tv shows and writing for different newspapers about what it's like to be black in britain yeah and For one of them, it was, um, I wrote about what it was like when I was 10, because when George Floyd was murdered, um, my son Isaac was 10. And I tried to compare, has there been much change from when I was 10, growing up in Britain, to what he was experiencing now, following the murder of George Floyd? And of course there's been progress, of course there's been change, but it's been glacial. The pace of change has been glacial. And uh, I remember I got a call on my phone um, and it was David Lammy. And David said, what do you think about the Black Lives Matter movement? And I said, no, he said, what do you think about Black Lives Matter? And I said, do you mean the political party or do you mean the movement? Mm -hmm. Because I've got a different answer depending on what it is. So we got talking We were both frustrated with the glacial pace of change and he said, oh, I want to get a group of people together to see what can we do because I'm so tired. What can we do? So I then rang Dame Vivian Hunt, who I consider a mentor, a friend, a badass businesswoman. I rang Vivian and said, right, David's getting a collection of people together just so we can all talk about, is there anything we can do? And then date, you know, we all one person, run another person, and then we all sort of met on a Zoom call. So the benefit of being trapped in our homes is that we could all meet on a Zoom mm-hmm. call, and there was quite a few people on this Zoom call. And from that, um, a core set of people sort of took this on to go right. We're going to form, we're going to form an organisation. We're going to form an organisation which is like the NAACP in the US because nothing exists like that in the UK. Yeah. We've got lots of amazing, brilliant organisations that touch on different areas which affect black people. So you've got the Runnymede Me Trust that releases lots of data and evidence. You've got, you know, Sister Space that looks at domestic violence for black women. You've got lots of different smaller organisations, but you don't have one that covers all of the areas where there is systemic and structural issues which are affecting black people. And you don't have one that's national. So we have a lot of focus on London. You don't have one that's national. And you don't have one that can do community as well as corporate. Mm -hmm. And if you look at the NAACP in the US and its history, it's able to do community and it's able to do corporate. When something happens, you get the Fortune 500 CEOs ring the NAACP, to get advice you get individuals that go to the NAACP for help and advice and legal advice sometimes Mm -hmm. we don't have that in the UK and until we do that pace and scale of change is going to still be glacial Mm -hmm. Um, so we said we wanted to be evidence and fact-based so we spent a year um, and we had the help of McKinsey um, because Vivian was at McKinsey at the time, so we had the help of McKinsey. Um, I had sort of roped in people to help from WPP, so I had a brilliant guy, Bart Mikels, who um, was at Kantar at the time. Um, We were all meeting to sort of... um, It was like having another job, actually, because we were all meeting to try and set the strategy for the Black Equity Organisation, or BEO, and we wanted it to be fact and evidence-based. We wanted to be a convener so that we could work with other charities and organisations to convene. And we knew that we needed corporate sponsorship as well as community representation as well. So our five strategic pillars focus on criminal justice systems. So it's where there's a disparity between black and all other and that disparity is increasing. So criminal justice system and reform, economic empowerment, um, cultural representation and respect. So who's writing our stories? Yeah, Who, who are we? Who's writing the, the newspaper stories that has an effect on how black people are portrayed? Um, health and education. So there's those five pillars where there's a disparity. The founding trustees were myself, David Lammy. Vivian, Dame Vivian Hunt, Kwame Kwe Omar, um, the artistic director of The Young Vic and film director and producer, and Rick Lewis from Tristan Capital. And we've now got a wider, uh, more trustees have sort of come on board. Um, And, you know, we've got brilliant organisations like Sky that have come on board to support F100 which is our programme trying to find support black entrepreneurs, because 0.24% of all VC funding goes to black entrepreneurs. And if you're a black female entrepreneur, it's 0.02%. So it's even worse. So Sky have come on board on a programme offering mentoring, support, training to those black entrepreneurs to get them ready to pitch for VC funding and give them support. So that's been brilliant. So they came forward and helped. WPP came forward and helped and this was Mark Reid and a team Stacey Graham uh, as part of their rec- racial equity programme um, sort of gave us sponsorship money over three years to help us make sure that we've got the data and the evidence um, so we commissioned a survey which was actually what do black people feel about opportunities and hope in the UK what do they really feel so quant and qual and um, And we've got people like um, Open Society as well sort of come on and given us um, funding and support. So it's now, you know, we've, 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 it's a lot of hard work. We've now got a team of about seven people um, that are full-time employees of BEO, as well as the trustees. And the focus is really about eradicating that inequity by really focusing on the systemic and structural issues Lewis Hamilton's um charity mission 44 is working with us to understand the issues and why we have issues in the education system and why black attainment is so far behind everything else and also why there's so few black head teachers um mm. that we have in this country as well so there's a lot of work but there's a vision there's a goal and there's a focus thank you for sharing
1: i really enjoyed Pleasure. really enjoyed um, getting that first report and kind of reading into it yeah, I mean, it means a lot to to see that kind of effort going through. Good, thank you.
0: Okay, that is. We've had tears, we've had smiles, we've had everything. We have <laughs> had
2: everything. Have uh, had thank you for sharing the story of how you became um, UK president of WPP. Uh, a, a final question here: what What values do you hope to pass on to Isaac, your mm. son?
0: Oh, that poor kid. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, He has heard from me so many times, um, and it's really interesting, actually. He came with me to the 30th anniversary of the murder of Stephen Lawrence, so he came to the ceremony with me, and uh, uh, Stephen's brother, Stuart, was um, giving a speech and was speaking, and uh, Stuart sort of said, you know, I heard from my mum used to tell me all the time you've got two ears one mouth using that proportion and eyes that just turned (laughs) I went yeah it's a Caribbean thing (laughs) so so that is definitely one thing I I hope he listens he really really listens before he speaks I want him to speak but to really listen um, and hear people Uh, I hope he has the same work ethic as me that you've got to work hard you absolutely have to work hard you've got to work hard for what you want and it really helps if you're passionate about what you do that helps with your working hard but also the thing that my dad used to say to me that learn and serve you've got to whatever it is you decide to do really learn about it learn everything about it make sure that you earn so you can look after yourself that you're never feeling vulnerable that you can look after yourself mm. and my god you've got to believe in community you've got to give back because we're a short time living and a long time dead and you have got to make sure that you give back and help others so i really hope he he's that person i really do
2: i love that i love that well, uh, uh, well we've got a final poem coming up I'll share I think one major thing that people can learn from from your story is you seem to um you seem to um embody or, and live through this uh this philosophy or, or way of operating in life that Ash and I've um uh tried to do for a long time which is win 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 mm. which is what's the win for you what's the win for the other person and what's the win for the wider mm. system and so you, you seem to throughout your life, you're, whether it's making a very tough decision about your future and your son's future and thinking about what's the best for me at this moment, or if that's salary, getting the best salary that's equal to your value you're bringing. And then always thinking about others, thinking about the CEOs and yeah. what, what their pain points are, what their yeah. troubles are, how can you bring gifts? And then thinking of the wider co- collective, your family, the group as a whole, and you just seem to always be making sure that those three wins are in check and everybody's winning and that is the foundation of great sustainable long-term relationships which is I think it's really powerful is.
0: and it's more that we sh- it's what we should be doing in society mm. yeah and it's um, i went on a training course recently or well, last october and uh, we they had a guest speaker the is somewhere, I can't remember where, but he talked about how at the moment the world feels like it needs a heart transplant. Mm-hmm. And it's true. It's literally... The, the, it does feel as though something's broken in our hearts at the moment in terms of the way that we're operating in society. And if everybody could have that triple win mentality, we'd be in a much, much better place than we are now. We really would. So not just being self-invested not being narcissistic mm. and really thinking about a wider community i think we all would win i genuinely do believe that
2: mm. and probably a message that's reflected in in the bob marley film absolutely
0: as well is. see what you've done there full yeah. circle full yeah <laughs> absolutely it is
2: for sure all right thank you
1: excellent well i think the poem will sum up a lot of what I've taken.
0: Please from today. don't make me cry again. Please, <laughs> I'll
1: try not to. But thank you for joining us today. Thank it's highly, you. Highly, highly inspiring to hear.
0: Oh, bless you! Thank how
1: you've approached work and how you approach your teams and and business. You know, looking after people, looking after, thinking, thinking about how things can be best for everyone. Again, the three wins. Here's my final poem for you number four finding where you fit in will allow you to have the most comfortable seat at the table and remembering not to fear to take the leap if the next step doesn't look so stable it could be traditional professionals or misfits where you find your place especially if the new environment allows you to learn from all of your mistakes keeping eyes on your people finance and strategy will keep high performance teams to not drift with a key lesson in creating change by being mindful of always bringing it a gift. How you grow and effect changes will benefit your learning curve while remembering a father's values of learn, earn and serve.
0: Oh, that's... Serena's crying.
1: Thank you for joining us today.
0: Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Serena, stop. <laughs> you want your tissues back? <laughs>